truth and love walk hand in hand together and they work hand in hand together. True Christians are not merely marked by truth. True Christians are not merely marked by love. True Christians, those that truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, are characterized by both truth and love. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 John in the New Testament. We began a study last, not last Lord's Day, but the week before, two weeks ago in 2 John. And this morning we want to conclude our study in 2 John. And I'd like to read um, the entirety of 2 John just so that we remember where we were a couple of weeks ago. But our focus this morning will, of course, as is printed in the bulletin, be on verses 7 through 13. The title of the message, Avoiding False Teachers, picking up in verse 1. John writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works." Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is God's word. Please be seated and let's bow and ask the Lord for his help. Father, as we continue our study in the epistle we call 2 John, we ask that your spirit might impress upon our hearts Not only the concept of truth, but also the concept of love. And that as we meditate upon truth and love, that we might know that to know Jesus is to know truth, it is to know love, and that by obeying your truth, that is your word and your commandments, we demonstrate our love for you. And by defending the truth, we also demonstrate our love for you and our love for your bride that you love, that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless our study, we pray for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. 
As we mentioned two weeks ago, John, the Apostle John's purpose in writing 2 John, and we can also even speak about 1 John and 3 John, because I'm a firm believer that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were all written by the Apostle John, and really all three of these epistles need to be read and studied together to really understand their truths. But to sort of highlight the emphasis of 2 John, we noted that John's purpose was to write in order that the church might unite itself around the concepts of both truth and love. John has worked hard to tell us that truth and love walk hand in hand together, and they work hand in hand together. True Christians are not merely marked by truth. True Christians are not merely marked by love. True Christians, those that truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, are characterized by both truth and love. John tells us in verse 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I'm writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. John is really following the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus cared very much that the church be unified, both in truth and and love. And as a matter of fact, he prayed for this very thing in his high priestly prayer. For example, Jesus prayed in John 17 to the Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, Jesus was praying for the apostles and then all believers that would follow. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' great prayer for the church was that there would be unity. But later in that high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed this. He said, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. What was the name of Jesus? The name of Jesus is a name that declares that God is saving a people for himself. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, no one can come to the Father but through me. It is that name of Jesus, the name that saves, that Jesus says he would make known. But then he says that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In other words, Jesus is praying that the truth of Jesus' name and Jesus' salvation would be declared, and as a result of that, that the love that the Father has for Jesus and the love that Jesus has for the Father, the love that is enveloped in that Trinitarian relationship might be experienced by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that is essentially what John has been writing about, truth and love. And now as we come to verse 7, if you notice your Bibles, the first word is the Greek word for. That is a transitional word because the word for is introducing to us what John is going to speak about in verses 7 through 13, and that is how everything that he has said before about truth and love is connected in terms of how we evaluate doctrine, how we are able to discern a false teacher from a true teacher. In fact, his point, as John now writes about in verses 7 through 13, is the danger of false teaching and the danger of false teachers. He wants the church to know how we can protect ourselves against who he calls the deceiver and the antichrist in verse 10. Of course, there are many deceivers and many antichrists. 
But the truth of the matter is, is that both the love that God's people have for God and the love that they have for one another, that love expressed in obedience to God's commands, is the very thing that protects a church from error. It is as a church loves one another and is concerned about one another that they are willing to tell the truth to one another about what God's word teaches and about what God's word doesn't teach to protect from error. When love is missing, so is truth missing because we are called to hold to the truth against error and when we don't, we aren't loving the brethren properly. And when truth is missing, so is love missing because without truth guiding us, we can actually be guilty of hating the church, not loving the church, not looking out for the brethren. So how do we identify false teachers as we apply to our lives the concepts of truth and love? I'm someone who grew up in the 80s and 90s, which makes me fairly old for many of you. But in 1996, uh, Disney came out with the movie 101 Dalmatians. Now, many viewers fell in love with not only the movie, but the cute spotted puppies on the screen. So much so that when they brought these adorable little puppies home after buying them, they found that living with the Dalmatian was entirely different than what they had seen on the movie screen. In fact, all over the United States, dog shelters saw a dramatic increase in the number of Dalmatians abandoned by their owners because they found out it wasn't the type of dog that they really wanted. In fact, a Florida organization called the Dalmatian Rescue took in 130 Dalmatians in the first nine months of 1997, less than a year after the movie 101 Dalmatians came out. And that was as many dogs that were abandoned in two and a half years, that many were abandoned right after the movie. Because Dalmatians are a challenge. They are big dogs. They weigh up to 70 pounds. They are rambunctious. They require a lot of exercise. They can be moody. They can be messy. They shed a lot. And 10% of Dalmatians are actually born deaf. So go ahead and try to tell the Dalmatian what to do. He may not be able to hear what you're saying. Whether with pets or with people, here is the point. Infatuation with someone's appearance is a poor foundation for a relationship. The appearance of someone who claims he loves God and claims that he loves Jesus, no matter how expensive his suit may be, no matter how big his smile may be, if he does not have the content of the gospel and the character of Jesus, the Bible tells us he is not worth following. He's not worth being infatuated with or obsessed with. But you see, many people today, as in all generations of Christian history, are easily infatuated with the superficial. And they hear a good-sounding voice, and they see a good-looking preacher, and they hang on every word they say without ever discerning the content of what is coming from the pulpit, or in most cases, the lack thereof, because many people have done away with pulpits, and many teachers have even done away with Bibles, or at least the appearance of that, because they don't take one into the pulpit. So folks, what John tells us in verses 7 through 13 is very important for us to pay attention to. This applies to our modern day. So what does the Apostle John do? The elder, as he calls himself, that was his nickname. Well, the Apostle John provides for us in verses 7 through 13 
requirements to help the church, that is the household of God, avoid false teaching. Four requirements to help the church, that is the household of God, avoid false teaching and false teachers. First, he provides a warning in verse 7. Second, a watching in verses 8 and 9. Third, a winnowing in verses 10 and 11. And fourth, a welcoming in verses 12 and 13. And I just want to say this, it matters not who you are this morning. Even if you are perhaps an unbeliever, these four requirements are for you so that you can discern true gospel preaching from false. And if you're a believer that's a baby Christian, this passage is for you to be able to discern what you hear on the TV or what you hear on YouTube or what you hear on the radio. And if you are a mature Christian or an officer in the church or a former officer in the church or perhaps seminary trained, these verses are still for you. We are going to take a very general look at the four requirements that we need in our lives to avoid false teaching. There are many cults that I could speak about this morning. There are many false religions that I could speak about. There are many and and big evangelicalism that I could speak about, names that you are familiar with. But instead of going that route, I want to keep our focus on the Word of God. I want you to have clarity in a general way what you need to do to avoid false teaching for your marriage, for your family, for your church, for the raising of your children, so that you can be a good witness to those you go to school with, so that you do not fall into error from everything that is being pumped into social media by wicked teachers. So let's begin. What are the four requirements? Well, first of all, John provides a warning in verse 7, and really it's a threefold warning. First, John gives us a warning about their dissemination. That is the dissemination of false teachers. He says in verse 7, 4, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. He had already warned in his first epistle in 1 John 4, 1, that many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here he calls them deceivers. Jesus also spoke this way in Mark 13. Jesus said, for false Christs and false prophets will arise. So John is highlighting the dissemination of false teachers. Jesus' prophecy is already being fulfilled in the first century. He says, notice your Bibles, they have gone out into the world. Ex erkomai. This is recalling the same sort of dissemination of Jesus when he commissioned the apostles to go out into the world, John is saying that deceivers and antichrists, false teachers, have been commissioned by Satan, as it were, to disseminate their message and deceive others, just as the Son was sent by the Father. Remember, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Just as God the Father sent the Son, and then the Son in turn commissioned the apostles to go out into the world. John 17, 18, as you sent me into the world, Jesus says, so have I, I have sent them into the world. Or John 20, 21, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you the same Greek language. The same verb is being used for John to say that just as the Father sent Jesus, just as Jesus sent the apostles, so now false teachers have been sent into the world to teach their lies, 
because they belong to their father, the devil. John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. And you need to be warned about the fact that there are a number of false teachers from all sorts of brands and labels imaginable. Jesus had his apostles of truth, and John is saying that Satan has his imposters of truth. Uh, The Roman road is used on the one hand for evangelism and on the other hand for error. There is the presence of missionaries that are heaven sent by Jesus, by the apostles, the elders have laid hands on, and there are missionaries that are hell sent by Satan, by deceivers and antichrists. And it matters not, times may ebb and flow, but all generations of Christian history have the presence of false teachers. And John and Jesus warns us about this. Their dissemination is far and wide. So what's the point? The point is our guard must be up. What does John say back in 1 John 4, 1? He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. The, world, the word test there is a word that is used to describe the testing of metals, to determine their authenticity, to determine their value. We are to test the spirits. We are to test all teaching. Because there are wicked people, empowered by the devil, fueled by hell, who are intent to destroy the church. I suppose you could compare it to a computer virus. A computer virus is like false teaching. And there are spiritual hackers, false teachers, intent on destroying truth, intent on feeding error, disseminating falsehood, deceiving and destroying. Or you could think of enemies of the United States who seek to disrupt and destroy and deceive through false information. John says, we have enemies who have gone out into the world on mission to destroy the church. So we need to test them. How do we test these wicked spirits behind false teaching? Well, that takes us to John's second warning. It's threefold, not only a warning about their dissemination, but secondly, a warning about their doctrine. How do we identify them? Verse 7 goes on to say, it is those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, that is not the only thing that identifies a false teacher, but that is, in John's context, the primary theological error that he was confronting. A telltale sign of false teaching is teaching that doesn't get the person and work of the Lord Jesus right. In this case, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Because that is a complete contradiction of what the apostles taught about Jesus, and it is a complete contradiction about what Jesus said concerning himself. He was clear, before Abraham was, I am, John eight fifty eight. Jesus descended from heaven, descended from the Father, and became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the fact that John says that these false teachers didn't confess the coming of Christ in the flesh 
may indicate that instead of blatantly denying Jesus' incarnation, that he came in the flesh, they just weren't confessing it. In other words, they were wicked wordsmiths. They were deceptive. Instead of directly contradicting Christ's humanity, they were deceptively counterfeiting it by saying something like, it only appeared that Jesus was in the flesh. Serentius, for example, said that the Spirit Christ descended on Jesus at his baptism and then departed from Christ before his death. The Gnostic teachers taught that Jesus could not have taken upon himself a fleshly body because flesh was evil and wicked. A material substance would corrupt Jesus. So they wouldn't confess directly that Jesus had come in the flesh. On the other hand, they weren't directly denying it, but practically speaking, their theology was teaching that. And that is a good warning for us. If there is not clarity on certain theological truths, it might be that the person has the ability to be clear, but is not being clear because they are a false teacher. Now, there are incompetent teachers that aren't clear on what the Bible teaches, and they might be false teachers in the sense that They don't really realize what they're doing. In that sense, they shouldn't be teaching. Uh, But there are false teachers who deceptively, in order to garner a crowd, will not be as clear as they should be about a particular doctrine, and that is a telltale sign that they are in denial of that doctrine that the Scriptures teach. Scripture is clear that we must affirm the doctrine of Christ's incarnation, His true humanity. There are so many places in the Scriptures that we could turn to. One of them is Hebrews chapter 2, which makes this so abundantly clear. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus partook of the same things. What same things? Flesh and blood. Jesus became a man. So that John says in 1 John 2.22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The Christ was a term for the Messiah, understood from the Old Testament to have human flesh, to have a human nature. 1 John 4.2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So that's the positive way to affirm it. But listen, all doctrinal error springs from an unwillingness to acknowledge the clarity of what the Bible teaches, regardless of my ability or your ability to comprehend it. It might be the hypostatic union of Christ. It might deal with the person and work of Jesus and his two natures. It might deal with the Trinity. It might be the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. But Isaiah 55 is clear. God's ways are not our ways and His ways are higher than ours. Or Deuteronomy 29, 29. Try this on for size. The secret things belong to the Lord, but things revealed belong to us and our children forever. In other words, God's truth does not wear out over time. In fact, God's truth is true generationally from one generation to the next as we pass it down to our children and the older the world gets, the more real and believable God's truth becomes. 1 John 4, 6, we are from God. 
Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What has been passed down through the church? Once for all delivered to the saints. Now remember that false teachers were circulating in the churches that John was writing to. I believe that he's writing to a church in Asia Minor. There were forerunners of Gnosticism. As I mentioned two weeks ago, Gnosticism wasn't fully developed until the second century. But there was an incipient Gnosticism that said, God is a spirit, John 4.24, and therefore Jesus could have never taken on human flesh. But here John is affirming that he did. Because John says that there are deceivers who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now you say to yourself, why is it important to affirm the humanity of Jesus? Well, take your Bibles and turn back with me to 1 John chapter 2. It's because this touches upon the heart of the gospel. 1 John 2 verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things, John says to you, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, thank God, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? Jesus Christ The righteous, verse 2, he, that is Jesus Christ the righteous, is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, and not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, for the sins of all the elect people who will ever believe, John says, and for those who live right now in the first century, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. The very reason the Son of God appeared in the flesh was, as 1 John 3, 8 says, to destroy the works of the devil. So why is it important to affirm that Jesus took upon himself humanity? It's important to affirm because Jesus had to partake in flesh and blood. He had to unite himself to humanity to become like us so that he could become one with us because he is the second Adam. He federally represents us. You can read about this in Romans 5, 12 through 21. I've spent many times explaining that passage to you, and so I'm not going to turn back to it. But Romans 5 speaks about Christ as the second Adam who took on flesh and blood to represent us before God. Jesus is our mediator, 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, the God-man. Truly God and truly man. So John is countering, for example, the false teacher, Serentheus, who said that the Spirit of Christ descended on Jesus at His baptism and then left Christ before He died upon the cross. This is to mess with the two natures of Christ. That Christ is full of manhood and Christ is full of Godhead. And these two natures were united at Jesus' birth And they have never since then been divided. There is a permanent union of the two natures of Christ in one person. One commentator puts it this way. He says, and I quote, What John wants to establish is that the Word, that is Jesus, the Word which once became flesh is still flesh and always will be. That the Christ who has ascended to the majesty of the Father that we just read about in the Heidelberg Catechism, The Christ who has ascended to the majesty of the Father is at one and the same true. The human Jesus. One and the same time, the human Jesus. There is a glorified man in heaven. 
The divine and human natures were united in one person within the womb of the Virgin Mary, this commentator says, never to be separated. So just generally speaking, anyone who tampers with the person and work of Christ or with the nature of Christ is tampering with the gospel and are in danger of falling into false teaching or are already themselves false teachers empowered by hell. So John is sounding a warning, a warning about their dissemination, the dissemination of false teachers. Many deceivers have gone out. A warning about their doctrine. And third, it's a threefold warning, a warning about their deception. Notice verse 7, he says, such a one who doesn't confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. In other words, John is saying, one who teaches error concerning the doctrine of Christ attacks the heart of the gospel and is therefore a deceiver, therefore is an antichrist. Now there's confusion about the identity of the so-called antichrist, but not to go into any sort of eschatological detail, I want you to turn back to 1 John chapter 4, because there's a very important principle to learn here. I already read verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Notice the plural, many false prophets. Now verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay, we got that. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Clearly what John is saying in 2 John. But notice this, this one is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What is John saying? He's saying that there are many antichrists, there are many false prophets, there are many teachers who operate in the spirit of the antichrist, and John says he's already in the world in the first century. So the focus is not on one particular individual it's on individuals and when that one individual who teaches false doctrine stands before us we can call them a deceiver we can call them an antichrist because the entirety of the christian faith is built on the person and the work of christ if jesus is not truly god then he he wouldn't have been empowered to live an obedient life and serve as our substitute and as our advocate. He would have never propitiated the wrath of God. He was judged in our place because he bore our flesh. And if he wasn't truly man, then he wouldn't properly represent us as the second Adam before God. He had to be God to bring God to us. He had to be man to bring man to God unholy sinner to holy God. So John says, such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist who teaches falsely concerning Christ, his nature and his work. Now skip back up to the beginning of verse 7 because there uh, John says, for many deceivers have, been, have gone out. The word deceivers is in the plural there. It's the Greek word plenos, which literally means wonderer. False teachers are wonders from the truth. That's how you identify them. In fact, Jude describes them that way. Jude describes them as wandering stars heading for black darkness. That is heading for judgment, eternal judgment. 
Paul calls false teachers false brethren in 2 Corinthians 11 and Galatians 2. Jesus calls false teachers wolves in sheep's clothing in Matthew 7.15. Paul again in Acts 20 verse 29 warns the Ephesian elders that savage or fierce wolves will come from among them not sparing the flock. Probably borrowing from Jesus' warning in, in Mark 13, which I quoted earlier, where Jesus says false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And he follows that warning by saying, be on guard, I have told you these things beforehand. So John is warning the church just as Jesus warned the apostles. And if you're elect, it's not possible that you can lose your salvation. Because Jesus says, if possible, these false prophets will deceive the elect. But it is true that someone truly elect and truly saved from time to time can be sucked into false teaching. And they won't continue in it to their own destruction. But Jesus says, that is what false teachers are after. And that's why there is this clarion warning about the presence of false teachers. You should not this morning have a Pollyannish view about the church. There are false teachers even this Lord's Day standing up in front of God's people proclaiming falsehood just because it has the name church and it has the name pastor does not mean it's real. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, false apostles, deceitful workers will disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And he even calls them in that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 11, servants of Satan who are wicked like their father. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, but their end is according to their deeds. And of course, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And you know Paul's words in Galatians 1. He pronounces anathema on those who preach a different gospel. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 26, John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. That is the verb form of the noun in 2 John 7, deceivers. What does a deceiver do? He seeks to lead astray, if possible, Jesus says, even the elect. So we're in a battle. And John provides a warning. On May 17, 1987, an Iraqi aircraft fired two missiles at the Navy USS Stark, which was patrolling the Persian Gulf. The Stark, this ship, was equipped with radar systems to detect missiles in the air. But in the nerve center of the ship was the electronic warfare operator. This was a man who monitored the systems, and if a missile was fired at the ship, he would be warned in two ways. On the one hand, an audible alarm would sound, and then secondly, a visual symbol would appear on the radar screen. But without warning, the missiles slammed into the side of the USS Stark, just above the waterline, tearing a 10-foot hole into the ship, killing 37 American sailors. And so in order to learn what went wrong, the House Armed Services Committee launched an official, an official investigation. And after visiting the ship and talking to the crew, they reported that the tragedy had probably not resulted from equipment failure. Rather, the cause was a human error or omission on the part of several people, and one was the electronic warfare operator in the ship's nerve center. 
The report said this, and I quote, The operator indicated that he had turned off the audible alarm feature because too many signals were being received that were setting off the alarm, requiring actions that distracted him from performing other signal analysis. And then with the audible alarm off, according to the investigators, he may have been distracted at the same time when the visual signals appeared on the radar screen. This was serious. And this is not like the alarm on your phone going off and you ignoring it. When it comes to false teachers, we're in a battle. And warning signals are usually an irritating interruption. And we don't want to hear that there are false teachers. We don't want to hear that there are deceivers in the church. We don't want to hear that Joel Osteen is a liar. We don't want to hear that Kenneth Copeland doesn't have the spiritual gifts that he says he possesses. Warning signals are usually an irritating interruption, but we turn them off at our own peril. And so John opens this whole passage up Packing verse 7 with a threefold warning. And the first requirement is to recognize the warning. But that takes us to a second requirement. John gives us to avoid false teaching. It's not enough to be warned. There's not only a warning, but a watching. Verses 8 and 9. And watching out for false teachers is a matter of consequence, something you need to care about, and a matter of evidence. Verse 8 spells out the consequence of not watching or heeding the warning. Notice verse 8. John begins, watch yourselves. Now he's going to go on to say, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. That's the consequence. But he begins with, watch yourselves. This is an individual and corporate dimension. In other words, Individually, we have a responsibility to watch out for ourselves, and corporately, we have a responsibility to watch out for the church. The consequences spell it out there, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But for now, I want to ask the question, how do we watch out for ourselves and one another? What are the practical things we can do, you can do, I can do? Number one... We need to be clothed with humility. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands takes heed lest he falls. We are not invulnerable. We are vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. In fact, the stronger your convictions are, perhaps the stronger the attacks may be. What does Peter tell us? He says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We need to be clothed with humility. If we want to watch out for our families and for our church and for ourselves from being deceived, Be clothed with humility. Number two, we need to be clothed with armor to fight. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. Uh, We're in a spiritual conflict, conflict with Satan's kingdom of darkness. Paul tells us that. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. How do we watch out for ourselves? We're to be clothed with humility, clothed with armor, third, clothed with prayer. Jesus told the disciples, Matthew 26, and in the Gospel of Mark, watch and pray. And in fact, that's part of our instruction as soldiers of Christ. Paul goes on to say in the passage that I was just reading, Ephesians 6, that we are to pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We're to pray. You see, we're in a battle. The church is not a showboat. It's a battleship. It is a place in which we clothe ourselves with humility. We clothe ourselves with the armor of God. We clothe ourselves with prayer. And we clothe ourselves, number four, with knowledge. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. How are you not outwitted by Satan? Well, when you're not ignorant of his designs. In other words, you know that he's going to disseminate false teaching. And it must be countered. For though we walk in the flesh, Paul says, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, we aren't to let our guards down. Because the secret plans of the devil have been found. He's disseminating false teachers. We need to watch out for ourselves and one another. And I'll just say this. Being part of a church that teaches the Bible clearly, convictionally, and forcefully is the key. That church will watch out for you. And will help you have the knowledge and the armor to watch out for what you need to. But this careful watching leads us to ask the question, why should we be so careful to be watching? And it goes back to the consequence that I alluded to. Notice it again in verse 8. Watch yourselves. Here's the consequence. So that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. I mean, John's just like Paul. Remember, Paul encouraged the Philippians to hold fast to the word so that in the day of Christ, he wouldn't prove that he had ran in vain or labored in vain. John and his associates want their teaching um, to not be in vain. John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Third John 4. John here is not worried that his readers are going to lose their salvation. That is impossible. What he's concerned about is that they will lose their reward. Because God gives his faithful servants who guard the word and work in the kingdom a reward. In addition to eternal life. Eternal life is free. But for those found faithful in kingdom service, those who guard the good deposit, they have the addition of a full reward in heaven. The consequence for not being watchful, therefore, John is saying, might result in a loss of reward. Or to put it positively as he does, if we are faithful, we may win a full reward. So here's the universal principle. The work of biblical teachers, the labor of biblical teachers, 
can result in their students winning a full reward in heaven when they take the information and apply it and use it. On the other hand, the hard work of the teachers of the word, if it's taken for granted, can result in the loss of reward, the loss of eternal reward in heaven, not the loss of salvation. In fact, in verse 8, it's a metaphor that's being used because the word reward is the Greek word misthos. And that was a word that described a worker's wage. John is probably, I think, referring to himself and his students, his followers as fellow laborers of the Lord's vineyard or the Lord's kingdom. And they aren't to let their guard down so they don't lose their full day's wages. Remember, Jesus gave that parable. We won't turn to it, but in Matthew 20, the parable of the vineyard. And the vineyard clearly is symbolic of the kingdom of God. And there are workers who receive wages in that parable. Jesus also gave the parable of talents, denoting that we all have kingdom responsibilities to speak the truth, to guard the truth, to be faithful to the truth. And we come to the end of that parable, and Jesus says in Matthew 25, 23, that the master will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So as I said, I think the teaching ministry of a local church is meant to be the safeguard for a Christian from error. But the Christian also has a responsibility to respond to the shepherd's teaching in order to be protected. You remember Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul spoke about some coming into the Corinthian congregation and building on the gospel foundation that he had laid. Do you remember when Paul spoke about that? He wasn't just personally insulted that he had laid a foundation and some teachers were coming in and building off of that. He could have rejoiced in that if their motives were right. He could have rejoiced in that if uh, they were teaching the right thing. But their motives were corrupt and Paul felt a stewardship over those placed under his charge because Paul understood there's an inbuilt pattern to God's church that the minister by the word and through the word and because of the word helps protect God's people so that they can receive their future reward in fullness. And if error creeps in by false teaching, the gospel foundation may crack, leading to unfaithful living and loss of reward. That is why Paul's epistles are filled with prayers for the saints, pleading to God that the church be protected. For example, Paul says this in Ephesians, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the, the fullness of God. That was Paul's prayer for the church. And we must pray for the church and pray for ourselves that we might receive a full reward. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field or vineyard. You are God's building. 
According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And that's why Paul told the Colossians, let no one disqualify you. Don't let these false teachers saying you have to observe the Sabbath and you have to be circumcised, you have to do something to earn salvation, don't let them disqualify you from receiving your reward. You see, individually and collectively, our future reward and the fullness thereof is at stake, so we have to be on guard. We must, 1 Timothy 6.20, guard what has been entrusted to us, that is the truth of the Scriptures and the Gospel in particular. We must, 2 Timothy 1, retain the standard of sound words, the treasure which has been entrusted to us. We must, 2 Timothy 3.14, continue in the ways we have learned and become convinced of. Why? Because the consequence is loss of a reward. That's why you should know theology. It's not to just be smart and have knowledge and impress people. It's for the sake of the reward and the fullness of of receiving that reward. But John is also concerned that some may not merely lose a reward in heaven, but some may be revealed not to be true Christians. We must watch, not only because of the consequence, which is loss of reward, but because of the evidence. What do we look for to identify these false teachers? Verse 9, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Here is the evidence, uh, John says. Everyone, or we could say anyone, who goes ahead. It's probably a reference to the false teachers who were Gnostic. Remember, they claimed they had a higher knowledge, a deeper knowledge, And if so, then John is saying they have gone ahead or gone beyond biblical bounds. They've gone beyond and therefore they don't abide in the teaching of Christ, as verse 9 says. That's the evidence of a false teacher. And the tragic result, John says, is they do not have God. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. You see, I think John's being sarcastic. He's saying that these false teachers, they had indeed gone ahead. In fact, they had advanced so far in their knowledge, they had left God behind. He's being sarcastic. Yeah, you have deeper, higher knowledge. You've gone so far, you've surpassed God. Congratulations. You don't even know God. You don't have Him. You never did. 1 John 2, 19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are not all of us. They didn't continue with us. They went ahead of us. They went beyond us. They thought they were better and bigger and higher and more knowledgeable. They despised the simplicity of the gospel. They despised the complexity of theology depending upon 
philosophy to explain things away. They had a go-ahead theology because they had gnosis. They had knowledge. So far advanced, God just let them continue to go to prove they really never knew God. But positively, those not deceived, or as verse 9 says, who are still abiding, whoever abides in the teaching, that's the teaching of Christ, has both the Father and the Son. Whoever abides in the teaching, that's the the teaching of the apostles in Christ. The ones who are shaped by the gospel in every respect. Shaped spiritually, they've been born again. Shaped intellectually, they have the mind of Christ. Shaped theologically, they've been exposed to the full counsel of God's word. Shaped affectionately, they have love for God and the obedience of His commands. Shaped eternally, they will be rewarded. John encourages them. They have both the Father and the Son. 1 John 2.22 Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the, fa- de- no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. No one can have the Son without also having the Father because the Son is the revelation of the Father, right? Whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. John 14.9 John 1.18, Jesus has made the Father known. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through Him. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So if you know the Son, you know the Father. If you glory in the simple gospel, then you know the Father. If you don't and you go beyond that and you delve into philosophy and carnal wisdom, you advance beyond the gospel, you advance beyond God and prove you never knew God. That's what John is saying. Jesus is our prophet. He tells us who God is and reveals God to us. He's our priest. He takes us to Him through His propitiated death on the cross. He's our prophet, tells us, priest, takes us, and He's our king. He places us under His lordship. So that true Christians have a true anointing. 1 John 2.21, I write to you not because... You do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. We know the truth. The Scriptures are sufficient. We don't need new revelations. God has revealed all that we need to know about Him in the Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. What we have heard from the beginning, John 1, 1 John 2, 24, what we have heard from the beginning, this truth, once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3, we love. We don't move or try to go beyond Christ and the gospel. We aren't mesmerized by philosophies, Colossians 2, like the Athenians who were mesmerized by the newest and latest ideas, like Eve in the garden who was mesmerized by Satan's new teaching about God as he was deceiving Eve. No, we watch out for ourselves and others by taking God at His Word, from His Word, we trust it. Because there is a consequence and there is evidence But the warning and the watching has a natural and logical 
Third requirement to avoid false teaching. A warning and a watching. Number three, a winnowing. Verses 10 and 11. How do Christians practically take action? Well, if I can borrow the metaphor of winnowing, we must learn to remove the chaff of false teaching and be discerning. First, we avoid opportunity. Verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. This is sort of like what Paul said in Ephesians 4.27. Give no opportunity to the devil. So John says, if anyone comes to you and he doesn't bring this teaching, any teaching that doesn't accord with the apostles, the word of God, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. And you say to yourself, well, we are commanded in the scriptures to demonstrate Christian hospitality. Of course we are. Romans 12, 13. We're to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That is true. Moreover, we're even commanded in Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christian hospitality, obviously something we should demonstrate, but Christian hospitality doesn't involve welcoming the spreading of heresy. It means that we confront it and that we avoid it. And several important things we need to bear in mind, really just three. Number one, here in verse 10, John is referring to the teachers of false doctrine, not necessarily followers of it who haven't been deceived. So when he says, don't receive them into your house or give them any greeting, He's not talking about someone who has been deceived. But if it's someone who is a teacher, or maybe they're not an official teacher, but they're trying to deceive you, you need to avoid them. Trying to deceive, then don't receive. That should be your motto. But if they've been deceived, then you should try to get them to a place where they can believe. So he's speaking primarily about influencers of false teaching. Because otherwise, verse 10 would mean you could have no fellowship with anyone in the world that wasn't a Christian. That's not what he's saying. You have a responsibility to be a witness for Christ. And more often than not, that's not on a street corner. And it's not to the waitress that's serving you at the restaurant. And it's not the clerk at the gas station. It's someone you know who's been in your home who you've served. You better know them in order to bring them the truth. So John's not talking about someone who's been deceived, but someone who's trying to deceive. Don't let them into your house. Secondly, since John is writing to a local church, he probably has in mind not welcoming false teachers as guest speakers in the house of God, the church of God. Now, this may include not giving room or board or having a meal with a false teacher in your home, because after all, The man is the priest of his home and he has a duty to protect it. But remember, in John's days, churches were still privately meeting in homes for fear of persecution. So the word house there in verse 10, I really believe, probably refers to the household of God, a worship service, where the church is meeting. To say that we should not schedule just anybody to preach and teach. Anyone who preaches and teaches must be vetted with the highest discernment and integrity to protect God's house. The people of God who are worshiping, who think they're hearing something from God. Many years ago, and I don't think that they use this 
anymore, but uh, the brand Under Armour used to have commercials that said, we must protect this house. That was their motto. And it was sort of of a way to promote their brand. We have the armor of God. And we have a responsibility to protect the people of God. And the third thing I want to say about verse 10 is that John is referring to false teachers who get the gospel wrong. He's specifically referring to teaching that goes completely contrary to the word of God, completely contrary to the gospel in particular or the person and work of Christ. So that when it says, if anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting, that doesn't mean that you can't have a Presbyterian preach in a Baptist church or a Baptist preach in a Presbyterian church. I've been doing quite a bit of research on my ancestors, several of whom were ministers. They were Baptist ministers. And I came across uh, this occasion when my great-great-grandfather was strongly reprimanded by the Baptist fellowship because he allowed one of his friends who was a pastor of another denomination to take Lord's Supper when they observed it in his church. This is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And even here at the church, you don't have to be a member of this church to partake of the Lord's Supper. You have to be a member of the body of Christ. You don't have to agree with us on secondary and third tier issues, but you must get the gospel right. You must truly believe In the gospel, whether you baptize or have your babies baptized or you believe that baptism is done after a profession of faith, it matters not. In the context, John is warning about those who deny the incarnation, those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. That's what he's warning against. So one commentator says, if we are right in thinking that this letter was addressed to a particular church, it would seem more likely that Your house, in verse 10, refers to the congregation. John is then warning the elect lady and her children, that is God's household, that was the metaphor that was used for God's household, against giving anyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, that of the apostolic gospel, giving them any opportunity to spread their deceptions among God's people. That's what verse 10 is teaching us. You avoid that opportunity. That's why... It's important to have qualified pastors and elders. 1 Timothy 3.2, who are able to teach. Titus 1.9, they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.6, we are to avoid people for among those who creep into household and capture weak women burdened with sin and they lead them astray with various passions. So, what is the winnowing involved? Well, you need to avoid opportunity. Secondly, you need to avoid complicity. Verse 11, for whoever greets him, that is a false teacher, takes part in his wicked works. The word greets literally means rejoice. So to joyfully embrace a false teacher in God's house or your own house is to become complicit With their wicked works, even if that's not your intention, God considers you guilty by association. When you feed their mouth by inviting them in, you're enabling them to feed doctrinal error into the mouths of others. False teachers need to be called what they are. Jesus called them thieves and robbers, John 10. He called them ravenous wolves in Matthew 7. So to embrace false teachers is to play with fire. 
It makes you complicit. But there's a final requirement. Four requirements to avoid false teaching. Number one, a warning, verse 7. Warning about their dissemination, their doctrine, their deception. Two, a watching. It's a matter of consequence, a matter of evidence. Third, a winnowing. Avoid opportunity, avoid complicity. Not only a warning and a watching and a winnowing, but there's also a welcoming. This is really, really critical, and John really changes gears here, verses 12 and 13. Instead of welcoming false teachers, we are to welcome true brethren, and the result of this is joy and strength. Notice first verse 12, he speaks about welcoming true brethren and how it results in joy. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. In other words, he could continue to write, but he's choosing not to. I don't think this is because he ran out of papyrus. I think it's not because he ran out of ink. I think he's trying to make a deeper point. He says, because I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. First of all, I like it because he invites himself and he's a true brethren and he's implying I'm a true brethren. And secondly, he says that collectively his and theirs, our joy is at stake. It's important that I come see you face to face. Literally in the Greek, that is mouth to mouth. You know why? Because you cannot replace live preaching. It's like mouth to mouth resuscitation. Breathing the life of God's truth into the souls of God's people. And John is saying that preaching in front of you is much better than paper and ink. If I'm going to strengthen you if you're going to have joy i mean you can relate to this texting or talking on the phone doesn't allow for body language or facial expressions because letters can never replace preaching texting can never replace a man in the flesh before others in the flesh speaking on the authority of god's word now remember john wrote earlier so their joy would be complete I don't know if you remember this, but in 1 John 1, 4, he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The whole reason that John writes 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John is so that joy may be complete. But he's got to get to them and unpack everything that he said face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, through preaching. And the reason the preaching of truth when God's people are gathered provides so much joy is because it also provides strength against Satan's attacks. Welcoming true brethren results not only in joy but also strength. Verse 13, John goes on to say, the children of your elect sister greet you. He had used this as a metaphor. Remember earlier in the first verse, the elder to the elect lady and her children, that's The specific church he is writing to, he calls her the elect lady and the members her children. And now he says, the children of your elect sister greet you. This is a greeting from the children of another sister church. You see, as John ministered, in-depth, doctrinal, face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, life-giving preaching, it produced joy and strength for the one body of Christ, regardless of where their churches were located. Because Christian fellowship always results in both joy and strength when the preaching of truth is at the heart of it. 
Truth is the key to true fellowship, which provides true strength for God's people and for this church to know that they are hearing the same things that the church John had spoken to, their sister church. They're all hearing the same truth. They're all together strengthened and they have joy. We ought to welcome the raw, unvarnished, untarnished, truth-filled preaching of Scripture in the household of God because it gives us joy and strength to withstand the schemes of the devil. Such gives us truth to arm ourselves against error and joy to trust that the victory is ours through Christ, that we have fellowship with one another, the one body of Christ, fellowship with the Son and the Father, from which we experience truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. We must be people of truth, And we must be people of love. And we can't be people of truth unless we love God. And we can't love God unless we're people of truth who know His commandments, seek to honor His Word, defend His Word, live for His Word, be empowered by His Word, strengthened and filled with joy by the blessed Holy Spirit. To God be the glory and may He strengthen our church. Let us pray. Lord, thank You for the clarity of your word. Lord, our study in Second John has been brief. But Lord, it has provided for us encouragement. Encouragement to know that we can mark out false teachers. Encouragement to know that we ought not to be scared to mark out false teachers. We have a duty and a responsibility to guard our hearts, to guard one another, to heed learning, to be watching, to winnow out the chaff because our eternal reward is at stake. We are to be those who welcome true believers and rejoice in fellowship with those who know and love the truth. So, dear Father, we pray that You would help us to do that. We thank You for what You've done in this church and what You will do. And now as we come to observe the Lord's table, we pray that as Brother John plays this wonderful hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee, that we would reflect upon the words found on page 380. And that as we come to the Lord's table, we might find rest and refuge in Christ alone. We pray for your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.